1 Kings chapter 19, we begin in verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruse of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 8. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I could call your attention in particular to verse 4, which tells us, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. He sat down under a juniper tree. Other English translations call that tree a broom tree. And I have to admit, I was kind of baffled to discover that. I'm not really sure what a broom tree is. Could it possibly be a shrub that uh, maybe functions as a broom? Uh, I don't know. But uh, the articles on broom trees tell us that this was a common tree in the wilderness, that actually it could... Uh, at times grow up quite high and become a source of shelter for those uh, in the wilderness. But at any rate, now we find Elijah under this juniper tree. We often hear about great contrast statements in the Bible, especially as they pertain to man's sinfulness and God's grace. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, we read, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And then there follows this noteworthy statement, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. You can't help but note the contrast in that passage, can you? A vivid description of man's sinfulness, but then contrasted to the greatness of God's grace Thank God for his grace. And in the epistle to the Romans, we find Paul devoting two and a half chapters to establishing the universal guilt of mankind. The Gentiles who did not receive the law of God the way Israel did are nevertheless guilty of a law that's stamped on their hearts. And the Jews, whose chief advantage was having the oracles of God committed to them, transgressed God's law, so that Paul would conclude in Romans 3 and verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Paul is aiming Uh, At that conclusion, for the first two and a half chapters, that every mouth may be stopped and the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then there comes this contrasting statement in Romans 3 and verse 21. But now... Okay, in Ephesians it was but God. Now we read, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe. And again, quite a contrast there, isn't it? Between the condemning power of the law and the saving power of the gospel. These contrasts come to my mind just now because as we come into 1 Kings chapter 19, we see another contrast. This one a very sad contrast between Elijah, who boldly stands before the 450 prophets of Baal and calls fire down from heaven and then prays down the rain, contrasted with the Elijah that we now find in chapter 19, especially in verse 3, where we read, And when he saw that, that is, when he perceived the threats of Jezebel against him, He arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. Oh, again, what a notable contrast do we find. Uh, You you would think they were two different characters almost. 
but in fact they're one and the, the same. Beersheba, commentators tell us, is in the southernmost part of Judah, so that we can say that Elijah put as much distance between himself and Jezebel as was humanly possible. And as we read these opening verses in chapter 19, who can help but say that the same thing that Nicodemus said to Christ when Christ told him he must be born again, so our response might be, how can these things be? That's what Nicodemus wanted to know on the occasion when he was having his discourse with Christ. How can these things be? We ask the same question now that one so courageous and as bold as Elijah, now we find him fleeing from the presence of Jezebel. I can't help but wonder if Elijah may have asked himself that question himself in the course of his flight from Jezebel. How many times, I wonder, in the course of his flight, would he have paused a moment to say to himself, Wait a minute! Didn't I just call fire down from heaven? And didn't the Lord just answer my prayer for rain? And didn't I oversee and execute the 450 prophets of Baal? And didn't I see and hear that gathered crowd of Israelites fall to their faces and confess that the Lord is God? Now, I should point out at, at least somewhat in Elijah's defense that there are times when it does become appropriate for a Christian to flee. The fact that he fled in and of itself isn't necessarily uh, what's wrong in this instance. Christ would say to his disciples in Matthew 10 and verse 23, but when they persecute you in this city, flee ye unto another. And Christ himself would at times withdraw and hide himself from his persecutors when they pursued him. So there is a time when it is appropriate to flee. But remember the pattern that we have noted here time and time again with regard to Elijah's movements. We have seen how he moved when the word of the Lord came to him and told him to move. That word directed him to go to the brook Cherith where the ravens brought him food. It was the word of the Lord that came to him and directed him to leave that brook and go to the widow in Zarephath. And that word came to him again after many days and directed him to show himself to Ahab. And when he prayed just before the Lord sent the fire, he said in his prayer, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Elijah was one who moved by the word of the Lord. Now it may be when we come into chapter 19 that the Lord would have directed Elijah to flee. But we have no such statement in this instance. 
that the word of the Lord came to him. He's broken what has been a very consistent pattern in this case. It appears in this instance that he acted by impulse. And I can't help but think that Jezebel must have been a very intimidating person in her wickedness, and that Elijah knew, based on her past actions, that she would indeed make good on her threat, as she had done to so many other prophets of the Lord. She had slain them. Now Elijah is convinced she'll do the same to me. It's not an idle threat. So we come now to Elijah under a juniper tree, a day's journey into the wilderness, verse 4 tells us. And we can't help but wonder at the contrast between the mighty prophet of Mount Carmel and the despairing prophet under the juniper tree. I want to focus on Elijah under that juniper tree this morning because I think I can say, spiritually speaking, that you and I face times in our lives when we find ourselves in the same place as Elijah. Perhaps there are those here this morning under the sound of my voice that are, in a sense, under the juniper tree, so to speak. So that's what I want to focus on today. I've given this message a title, Elijah under the juniper tree. Elijah under the juniper tree. That's the title uh, of the message this morning. Let's think, first of all, on the factors that led to Elijah coming to this place under the juniper tree. And I think it's pretty plain in the narrative to say that the primary factor that led Elijah to the juniper tree was the fear of man, in particular, the fear of Jezebel. This is not the first time we've had occasion to note the fear of man in the narrative on Elijah. You may recall from earlier studies in chapter 18, the character Obadiah. You remember Obadiah a few weeks ago? This was the man, we are told in the narrative, that feared the Lord from his youth. This is the same man that uh, said to Elijah when he met Elijah that he feared the Lord from his youth. It was Obadiah, you may recall, that hid the Lord's prophets in the caves by fifties and fed them bread and water at the time that Jezebel was putting the Lord's prophets to death. We noted in that study that took up Obadiah that there were two competing fears working in his life. There was the fear of the Lord, and that is attested to by the author of the book and by Obadiah himself. And then there was also the fear of man. Obadiah, you recall, was reluctant to report to Ahab that he had met up with Elijah You remember the meeting. Elijah says to him, Go tell Ahab that Elijah is here. And Obadiah was very reluctant to want to obey that command. 
He was afraid that the Spirit of the Lord would lead Elijah away. And when Ahab, who had been taking oaths from the neighboring kings that Elijah wasn't hiding in their lands, if Ahab would learn that Obadiah came face to face with Elijah and failed to apprehend him but let him escape, Ahab would surely execute his servant for his failure to apprehend Elijah. And he protests that to Elijah. I wonder now if under that juniper tree, Elijah might have thought about Obadiah. I wonder if he may have thought that perhaps he had been too harsh in his estimation of Obadiah's character. We'll see a little later in chapter 19 that Elijah was gripped by the mindset that he alone was the only one left in all the earth that had been jealous for the Lord's honor. But under that juniper tree, Elijah would have to admit to himself that he too, like Obadiah, had been gripped by the fear of man. He does confess in verse 4 that he, that is Elijah, in his own estimation now, he's no better than his father's. And so it is that the Lord is pleased to show his servants that they don't stand in their own strength. They stand in the Lord's strength. And if for whatever reason the Lord withdraws his strength, then they flee the way Elijah did on this occasion. I'm reminded of Peter in the New Testament who was so sure that he would be true to Christ come what may. So we read in Matthew 26 and verse 33, Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. It would seem, wouldn't it, from that passage that Peter had something of a contagious spirit, didn't he? All the disciples were carried away by Peter's bold affirmation that he would never deny his Lord, and yet in the end they all would flee, with one exception, that being John. And in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter would cave into his fears, which would be triggered by the accusation of a maid that he, Peter, had been with Jesus. Uh, no, I haven't. Nope, I, I don't know the man. He caves in before uh, what we, I suppose, envision as a petite little maid. And then there's the instance in Matthew 14 where Peter calls on Christ to bid him come to him as they cross the stormy sea and the Lord is coming to them walking on the water. And Peter says, if it be thou, Lord, bid me come to thee. And the Lord says to him, come. And initially, Peter does walk on the water until he's distracted by the stormy waves and then begins to sink. Oh, it is for good reason that Paul writes to the Corinthians 
Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Oh, don't ever make the mistake of boasting in your own strength. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you are not wholly dependent upon the Lord, especially when it comes to being true to him. Spurgeon makes the remark in a sermon he preached from this text in 1 Kings 19, that even the best of men are but men at best. Let's recall the lessons that I brought to your attention in our earlier study where we focused on Obadiah, how we must constantly be engaged in cultivating the fear of the Lord and conquering the fear of man. That is a constant spiritual activity that we must be engaged in at all times. Proverbs 29 and verse 25 We read, the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Christ says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And let's be sure as we engage in the practice of cultivating the fear of God and conquering the fear of man, that we don't ever reach the point where we think we've arrived and can confidently affirm the way the disciples did, that they would never deny Christ under any circumstances. Better by far to imitate them in their humility when at the news that one of them would betray Christ, each one of them asked, Lord, is it I? Better by far to have a humble sense of your vulnerability than to have a misplaced carnal confidence. So this is what brought Elijah to the juniper tree, the fear of man. Let's think next for a moment or two on the spiritual condition of Elijah under the juniper tree. In verse 4 we read, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Here's a man I dare say who's hit rock bottom in terms of despair and discouragement. Uh, Lord, take away my life. I'm such a flop. I'm such a failure. Take me home, Lord. Spurgeon devotes a section of his sermon to dealing with how foolish Elijah's reasoning is here. He notes, he, that is Elijah, prayed that he might die because he was afraid that he should die. That's the odd thing about his request. He was running away from Jezebel because she had threatened to kill him, yet he prayed that he might die. 
This was very inconsistent on his part, but we always are inconsistent when we're unbelieving. So Spurgeon notes. Now I understand the point that he's making when he says that, but I'm not sure that he captured the sinking depression of Elijah and the depths of despair into which he sank. I think that in the course of his flight from Jezebel, he probably became all the more astonished with himself and was gripped by a very strong sense of failure. He may have asked himself repeatedly, what am I doing? Why have I fled? I stood up to Ahab, I called fire down from heaven, I saw the rain come and answers to my prayers, at the very moment I was most needed to carry on the reforms that could have been initiated, I ran away instead. What have I done? And in a growing sense of despair, he would have asked the Lord then to take his life. And unseen in his spiritual conflict and unrecorded in the narrative, but I think true nevertheless, would have been the devil magnifying his foreboding thoughts about his failure. We know this because we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. So it's not hard to envision the devil saying to him, God gave you an opportunity and you blew it. I can imagine the devil saying that repeatedly to Elijah. You're through. You failed. You're no better than your idolatrous fathers. Now we should note here that Elijah isn't alone when it comes to such a sense of despair. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, we have the account of Moses being so discouraged by the burden he bore that he asks the Lord to take his life. So we read his complaint. I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Moses had sunk that low. He was experiencing a sense of wretchedness that made death more desirable than life to him. And that word wretchedness brings to mind the Apostle Paul's word in Romans chapter 7 that pertains to a sense of personal failure in his own sanctification. So we read in Romans 7, verse 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who shall deliver me from my sins that cling to me and bring me to a place that the things I know I shouldn't do, I somehow find myself doing? 
The things I don't want to do, I, I do. The things I should do, I find myself not doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says. We read a little earlier in the service from the book of Jonah. Had we carried our reading to the end of the book, we would have found yet another instance of a prophet of the Lord who wants to die. In Jonah's case, you could say his wretchedness is found in his being angry with God because of God's mercy toward the inhabitants of Nineveh. He didn't want to go there. He didn't favor that nation. He was not in agreement with God's choice to even give a word to that city. Therefore, now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah 4 and verse 3. Jonah goes so far as to plead the righteousness of his plea when the Lord asks him a little later in that chapter, Doest thou well to be angry? To which Jonah replies, and you can almost uh, picture his temper here. I do well to be angry even unto death. So the prophet says. Now there is a sense in which a Christian may legitimately desire death over life. None of the instances I've cited fit into that category. But that category does exist. The apostle Paul, when he was in a Roman prison and was facing the very real prospect of death, he could write to the Philippians and express his desire to depart and be with Christ. For I am in a strait betwixt two, he says, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And you can almost hear him sigh and say, but to stay here is needful for you. And Paul had, a, I think, a pretty certain assurance that his life would be spared. Paul's desire in that instance is altogether different from the despair of Elijah or the wretchedness of Moses. I'm glad that we have the accounts of Elijah's despair and Moses' wretchedness and Jonah's anger because they show us that when we sink into deep discouragement and despair, we are not in a place that godly men in the past were not unfamiliar with. It's not really terribly unusual. We find multiplied examples of it in Scripture. Despair and discouragement can run so deep that we may wish in ourselves to die. It's worth noting, however, that even in his despair, Elijah was submissive to the Lord. If he's to die, it has to be the Lord that takes away his life. Oh Lord, take away my life, he prays in verse 4. He's not going to prove himself to be the kind of apostate Judas Iscariot proved himself to be by running out and taking his own life. Now, Lord, I, I want you to take my life. I want you to kill me. But there's a notable element of submission there that we can't pass over. And there's something ironic also about Elijah's prayer, and that Elijah would turn out to be one of those characters in the Bible, a very rare instance in which 
he would not ever die. As much as he wanted the Lord to take him, uh, he wouldn't die at all. We'll see later that he was taken to heaven in a chariot and he was allowed to bypass the river, so to speak, when his time in this world was up. What I want you to see now, however, is that your own despair and discouragement is not something that's unusual. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 And this leads to my final point about Elijah under the juniper tree. We've seen the circumstances that brought him there, as well as his spiritual condition under that juniper tree. Let's think finally on God's grace to Elijah under the juniper tree. Look with me, if you would, in verse 5. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruse of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. I pointed out in my introduction the tremendous contrasts that we find in Scripture, especially with regard to man's sinfulness and God's grace. Well, here is another instance of such a contrast. God was not waiting with a club to beat up the prophet, wasn't he? God took no part in adding to his despair and discouragement. God did the very opposite. He sent an angel who ministered to Elijah when Elijah was in that condition. Now, we are, are told that this is an angel, and we're told a few verses later that this was an angel of the Lord. It makes me wonder, and I'll harbor at least the possibility, that this could have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I suggest the possibility of it because I couldn't find a single resource to agree with me on that but neither can it be denied that the title, the angel of the Lord, does at times in the Old Testament apply to Christ. So that's why I say I hold out the possibility that this very well may have been Christ himself drawing near to his discouraged prophet. The, the scene reminds me of another New Testament scene 
where you have uh, in John's Gospel, John chapter 21, you have that scene uh, of the uh, disciples who have caught nothing all night, and there is Christ on the bank on the shore, and he tells them to drop their net down on the other side, which they do, and they end up with a large catch of fish, and as they come and meet with Christ, Christ has prepared for them a fish dinner, if you will, with the fish cooking on the coals. And here you find basically the angel of the Lord doing something very similar uh, for Elijah. So this could have been Christ, whether or not this angel was a pre-incarnate uh, version of Christ. You can say, nonetheless, that he was certainly Christ-like and that he ministered to Elijah at that time. And it's rather interesting to note, isn't it, how the Lord will minister even to our physical needs and mental needs in times of trial and great distress. Sometimes, you know, the biggest need you face is to get some rest. Uh, there is a connection. We, we know, obviously, there is a distinction between the soul and the body, but there's also a very strong connection between them. I, I, I used to think, wrongly, what a blessing it would be to be in the hospital for an extended period of time. Just relaxing in bed all day, I'd have people bring to me all the books that I want to read, and I could just, uh, at my leisure, let them bring me my meals at mealtime, and I could devote myself to uh, reading and praying or whatever. Uh, and yet, you know when you get sick, you don't feel like reading, you don't feel like praying, you don't feel like doing anything. You just wish you could be better physically. And here we have an instance of the Lord ministering to a servant by providing for his physical needs and I find it very interesting to note in this connection. Look at verse 6. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruse of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and then note it, and laid him down again. He woke up at the prompting of the angel. He had the meal that the angel provided, and he went back to bed so to speak. Oh, what a blessing. Uh, how considerate and gracious the Lord is toward his despairing servants when he provides for them to rest. And there, there's no rebuke in that. There, there, there's no chastisement for him resting or for him going back to sleep, so to speak. And when you think about it, it would surely make sense. I mean, what had Elijah been through over the previous days? How taxing do you suppose it was on him emotionally and mentally and physically to take on the 450 prophets of Baal, uh, to go to the top of Mount Carmel and devote himself to fervent prayer, sending his servant to 
look out over the sea again and again and again seven times and then to gird up his loins with what appears to be supernatural strength to run to Jezreel ahead of Ahab. And then the impact after all of that of discovering that of all the hearts that had been turned to the Lord on Mount Carmel, Ahab's heart evidently wasn't among them. Because had it been, his wicked consort, Jezebel, would not have had opportunity to lay out the kind of threat that she lays to um, swear by her gods that by tomorrow Elijah would be executed too. Evidently, Ahab wasn't going to stop her. Evidently, Ahab's heart was still as hard as ever. And how crushing that must have been to the prophet to make that kind of discovery. He thought they were on the brink of revival and national reform, and now it appears as if the whole thing was going to be squelched, and so he flees. And oh, I, I can uh, imagine, and I'm sure you can too, just how incredibly taxing the whole affair would have been on him mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every way. So what this man really needed more than anything else was the sleep that was granted to him on this occasion. And you know what? Sleep is a blessing from God. He gives sleep. I believe we read in Proverbs. I didn't cite the, uh, the verse. But sleep comes from the Lord. And what a blessing to be able to lay your head down on your pillow at night and know that whatever is going on in the world, all is well between me and my God because I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so I can sleep at night. I think you probably heard me say it on repeated occasions that if I didn't think that the Lord ruled and reigned in this world, I don't know that I could get out of bed in the morning. But because I have assurance that all power and authority is given to Christ, that he does rule and reign, then even when things may not pan out to my expectations, I know nevertheless that my God rules and reigns, that he does all things well, and that I am among his redeemed. The Lord was gracious to Elijah. So the thing I want to leave with you as we bring this time to a close is that God's grace prevails even in the midst of our discouragements. Take that lesson from Elijah under the juniper tree and that's a lesson that's going to be magnified and we'll have to deal with it again when we look at Elijah on Mount Horeb but take that lesson with you and let the Holy Spirit drive it home into your heart that God's grace prevails even in the midst of despair and discouragements. I think, and, and, and with this I close, I'm reminded of the disciples themselves, how they were convinced that the whole cause they represented had failed. Here they are with Christ, and if you can envision them 
entering into the city of Jerusalem, Christ's triumphal entry, and it looked like everything was on track for the establishment of the kingdom as they thought it would be established. And a short time later, this one in whom they had pinned all their hopes is crucified. And my, we, we have the benefit. I know I've pointed this out before. We have the benefit of an entire Bible and thousands of years of church history to aid us in our understanding of the Bible. We have that, so when we read the account of Christ being crucified, you know, we can more or less shrug our shoulders at it and say, well, of course, that was his purpose for coming. The disciples who were there at the time on the scene weren't thinking that way at all. In fact, you could say of those disciples that never had hopes been raised so high only to be pushed over a cliff, as it were. And yet at the very time when the disciples were in their deepest despair, thinking that all was lost, that all had failed, at that very moment, the greatest triumph prevailed that we can conceive even our salvation. And that's why I am fond of saying that when you find yourself in the midst of circumstances that may not make sense to you, that may not seem right to you, that may cause you to question God or perhaps even be uh, a little angry with God, stop and reflect on the truth that you're not really in a strange place when you're treading that path because that's a path that Christ himself has tread and because he tread it he's pleased to have us tread it too so that we too can see triumph come out of tragedy oh let's draw these lessons then from Elijah under the juniper tree and don't let your despair keep you down because grace does prevail, and Christ will prevail, and you, by his grace, will prevail. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for thy grace. We thank thee, Lord, for the dealings that thou didn't take with thy prophet. We, 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 we marvel, Lord, that Thou wast so gentle to him and gracious and merciful to him. We thank thee, Lord, that you didn't put him on a shelf. You didn't chastise him. You sympathized with him. You ministered to him. And we thank thee, Lord, that thou dost do the same with us when we find ourselves under the juniper tree, so to speak. So, Lord, I pray that thou wilt encourage any that may be downcast and discouraged today. Build us up in the faith and help us to recognize from thy word that our God does all things well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.